In its quest to provide an open forum for discussion of controversial issues, this station allows hosts and their guests to express themselves without any significant censorship. You are advised that any view expressed by the host or their guest are not necessarily the views of the owners or management of Toginet Radio, Togi Entertainment, or the Owners Group, Inc. Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney. Vivian is here to talk to you, to encourage you, and to show you how she had a successful homeschooling experience with her Wildflower Academy, and that her kids turned out great, and that with God's help, you can create the same experience she did. From her beginnings in Hostert, West Germany, to Dallas, it's been quite a journey, and her abilities to adapt, survive, and thrive are what make her unique in homeschooling. So have your pen and paper ready. It's The Sociable Homeschooler. And now, here's your host, Vivian McNinney. There is a time for everything, a time to be silent and a time to speak. Ecclesiastes 3.7. The writer of this verse must have known my family and many others like ours. Our four walls resound with chatter all the time. Important chatter, I hasten to add, but words bouncing off the walls all the same. This gentle and wise reminder tells us that sometimes silence is just as important. How uncomfortable is that? Good afternoon. Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler. I'm your host, Vivian McNenny, and it's another lovely day here in Texas. The State Fair has really had it going for it this year. What a blessing. And as I broadcast this afternoon, I'm accompanied by the Mockingbird, who has serenaded our house in the spring and autumn for 26 years. He escapes the intense Texas heat of the Gulf each summer, lucky, and is sadly missed, but he's back. Obviously not the same bird, of course, unless they live for decades. A descendant, no doubt. He sits on the highest spot he can find. It used to be our television aerial, until that became obsolete. Now it's the chimney or our driveway lamppost, or the top of several trees around the perimeter of our property, all of which have grown since he first visited. As a mockingbird, this creature is amazing. I've heard him mimic a cat meow. Does he have a song of its own? As it sings its way through the day, building on other birds' melodies, apparently it often carries on through moonlit nights, and this is when its own song bursts forth. With nothing to mimic, all the other birds are quietly tucked up in their nests. He sings his heart out without the distraction of the other courts. In addition to the return of the mockingbird, I've noticed other signs of autumn. One or two trees are very slowly starting to turn. But my oleander, by contrast, is blooming again. A welcome splash of pink among the green foliage. Guess what? This week, my handsome rocker cowboy joined the ranks of college professors emeritus. He was invited by the head of the theatre department to come in and speak to a class about his life on the road as a tour manager. He was well prepared and took along a five-minute teaser of a documentary he's made about the touring industry. Some of the young people in the class nodded in recognition as he mentioned some of the bands he played with or worked for, the Trogs, Cream, Zeppelin, Three Dog Night. Others were clueless, and these were among the classic bands. It's rather like talking to a group of Malia's dancer friends when they say, Martha who? when I mention Martha Graham, or English literature majors who don't know who Thomas Hardy was. Trying to give our children a broad knowledge base for them to put history and their current lives into perspective is tough when you realise that there are hundreds of books alone that have been challenged and banned in America over the years, including Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, How Apropos This Week, 
F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby, Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer, and William Golding's Lord of the Flies, name but a few. Thank goodness for the efforts of librarians, teachers, booksellers, and members of the community who fight to keep these books in the library collections. Anyway, Rocker Hubby was great, and Malia agrees it's wonderful to have a dad with an unusual job, even if he does embarrass her sometimes. Hey, that's what dads are for. Her friends think he's cool. So do I. Well, last Friday, we were supposed to go to the theatre, but we skipped out in favour of a movie. We didn't know what the play was about. It looked risky, so we decided to play it safe and go to the cinema. We went to see Toy Story 3 for a dollar. Now, I know I'm not the only parent alive who, when a film comes out that we thoroughly enjoy, cringes when it's ruined by the never-ending sequels, which the children always want to go and see. By the time we get to four or five, even my youngest ones are saying, let's wait until it comes out on video or DVD or whatever the latest medium it's being shown in at the time. So, based on my past experience, I didn't jump up to go and see Toy Story 3 when it was at the full-price movie, so off we went to the discount movie house last Last Friday. The film was really quite good and sad. It dealt with children growing up and going off to college and leaving all their beloved toys behind. As a parent, I was reminded of how I felt when my first child left for college. Actually, now I can't remember why we were so sad. It was quite a relief to have one less booming voice bouncing off the walls. I'm told I couldn't go into his vacated room for a week after his departure without falling into a melancholic slump. I wrote that none of the other three children rushed to take over his room. It was sacred, since he was the oldest sibling. His empty room remained indisputably his for the whole of the first semester. Oh, that was then. Now, as soon as another one bites the dust and hits the trail for independence, his or her room is commandeered within minutes. No second thoughts allowed. The film? Yeah, it was good, for a dollar. Well, everyone, the of the British Empire is just not doing it for me anymore. I should have trusted my initial instincts that the group is really too old and fuddy-duddy for me. My eyes were finally open last Saturday after almost a year of faithfully attending meetings, and it was at the fundraising barbecue that my hubby and I went to. Surprisingly, Malia came with us. She's such an Anglophile. But even she grew weary and left after an hour to pursue Plan B, which we should have had. There were mostly women in attendance, and they all sat around talking about women's stuff, topping one another's hard luck and health stories, marital complaints, and midlife, actually more like old life crises. Yes, there was one round after another of horror stories. Susan Jeffers roundly admonishes women who complain about their lives in her book, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. Stop griping. Take action. Find the pleasure in your life. Don't wallow in the pain, she says. My young daughter astutely and flatteringly observed, Those women are old, Mum. You're not old. My thanks, beloved blind product of mine. Time to close the DBE door and find another window to sneak into. And it's time to go to my book excerpt, which this week is from the chapter entitled, You Are the Best. My brother and I, growing up, relied exclusively on each other's company. Our favourite games took place in High Wycombe, Buckinghamshire, at Nana's, my paternal grandmother. She had a corner house surrounded by an enormous garden, front and back, bordered by a lane with hedgerows in the heart of the countryside. One game we played was called Circus. We'd spend days devising the acts. Strongman, lion tamer, acrobat, clown, wild west rider. I'd design and draw up a programme and we'd charge a fee to perform whenever anyone asked, and especially when our parents came to pick us up. 
Some improvised acts with my brother as the star included the day I dug a hole and planted and watered him in an attempt to make him grow. A balancing act I performed with the metal garden rake precariously perched on my outstretched palm, which toppled down on his head, leaving three good-sized holes in his cell, flowing with blood, and a mad dash through stinging nettles, which he made to my loud accompaniment on the water barrel drum. None of these ever made it to the official list of acts, although plenty of ad-libbing and deviations from the original script occurred whenever we had a paying audience and disagreed about the sequence of the show, but couldn't stop to fight it out because grown-ups were watching. When we weren't performing, we attended to our joint business venture, a grocery shop in Nana's side garden. We used a bench from Grandad's potting shed and set it up as a stall and displayed our produce, berries, leaves, blossom twigs, stones, and even Rex the dog's hard white excrement for sale. I'd make price tags, and we'd take it in turns to be the customers, using small pebbles as money and Nana's string bag. We learned valuable lessons about pickpockets and vandals who repeatedly terrorized the female customer. Wild West brawls and gunshots usually made their appearance as lunchtime drew near, and the poor proprietress of the, poor, of the small business venture was left weeping amid the remains of her produce, fixtures and fittings. We loved these games, these reenactments of real life, which we witnessed when our grandmother took us out in the afternoons. We had no need of any other children who may have bullied us or tried to take over or worse, laughed at us. In the afternoons, my grandmother always took us out. We'd go for a walk along the lanes to pick blackberries or to a park to feed the ducks. Occasionally, we'd visit a cemetery set in the grounds of a massive church with a bell tower. We'd climb the end of stairs to the battlements and imagine we were on top of the world. I had to watch my back here because my brother was still very much at the age where damsels in distress could be rescued by flinging them over the crenellations to the dubious safety of the horse below. Our favourite outing was to the banks of the River Thames in Marlow, where we'd take a picnic lunch. Cows grazed amid the fields that met the water's edge, and their manure had an uncanny magnetic power over my grandmother, who always set up her chequered tablecloth and basket on or beside one of these odorous patties. On market day, Friday, we'd travel into the town where we would laden ourselves with fresh fruits and vegetables, plenty of homemade jams, cheeses and cakes to last us for the week. The return journey on the bus was sweetened with pieces of chocolate unevenly broken from the huge slab she always bought. We'd walk the distance from the bus stop to home carrying our heavy shopping bags and giggling about how much food we bought for only one week. Our laughter made us weak and we'd have to stop along the way to catch our breath and renew our strength with more chocolate. My brother was never any help with the lugging. He was too small, always. But once home, we gulped down our cup of tea and head back outside to play until darkness fell, and we went exhausted to our beds. Well, I'm coming close to the end of this segment, and I just want to tell you a little bit about my guest who's coming up in the next segment. Um, his name is Larry Farris. He is a homeschool father who took his family to Mexico for the winter in his RV, and he loved it so much that they decided to continue RV schooling, as they called it, and tour around the United States for 10 months. When off the road, Larry and his family live in Arizona, where he teaches psychology. So um, he and I will be talking about different ways of homeschooling um, when we get back from our break. And... Um, 
he actually teaches, well, I said he teaches psychology, but I think he actually teaches um, teenage kids as well. And so he's going to be very interesting, especially as they did what a lot of homeschoolers do. They um, traveled around, you know, have wheels, will travel. In fact, I read about a family that are actually riding around America right now on their bicycles and homeschooling as they're doing it. So there's some very interesting homeschoolers out there that we're going to be bringing in to um, talk to over the next few weeks. So um, time to go to our break and I will be back after these messages. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on Toginet with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website and thus NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing, chronicling her opinions on everything? The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Bomb with Jill Hickey, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on toginet.com. everybody, this is Pete Dix of Beatles and Beyond. You're listening to George Harrison jamming in the background here as I'm preparing the next show for you. So why don't you listen to Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix on this radio station. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. Well, hello, I'm back, and um, I've got my guest with me, uh, Larry Farris. Larry, are you there? Hi, how you doing, Vivian? I'm doing well. How are you? Wonderful. It's good to hear your voice. Well, that's good to hear you too. Um, I have um, I've, I introduced you briefly, so um, I was talking about your RV um, schooling, not homeschooling, but RV schooling. So I was going to ask you to uh, to kick off with um, why you started homeschooling and how you ended up um, in an RV um, traveling around America homeschooling your children. Well, that's a great question. I appreciate that. We actually. Um 
We started out with the same challenge. It was traveling. Um, I had an opportunity to work in Costa Rica when my oldest son was going to be entering first grade. And, um, you know, my wife and I looked at each other and said, come on, it's Costa Rica. You know, my wife was like, what about school? I was like, hey, let's grab some books and go teach him, you know, the ABCs. And so we spent the winter of 1995, I believe it was, in Costa Rica. And uh, when we came back to Oregon at the time period, we had my son tested to try to get into second grade. And he was so far ahead, the public school system was already expressing that he was too far ahead. And we're thinking, wait a minute, what, you know, why is he so far ahead? He's just He's been traveling in the jungle and hanging out with us, and we've been doing some ABCs and some colors and some things like that. And like, oh, no, he's just way too advanced. And we just realized that, you know, what we were doing at that phase was as long as our kids were so far ahead, it must be working. Absolutely, absolutely. And at that time, you just had the one child, or did you have? Did you already have your three children? Uh, we had three. We had three boys. Um, yeah. You know, Spencer was six then, so it would have been six, four, and two. Oh, okay. And uh, so we, you know, but our but our our six year old time period, he'd have been. I guess he's about five and a half. Um, yeah. But but. That was our, you know, that was our first experience with um, uh, kind of deciding the, where we, we kind of skipped over the first grade. And by the time we skipped over the first grade, that our, our son was already far enough advanced that um, we just, you know, continued on the process. That was kind of the beginning for us. Well, that's great. And you haven't looked back. No, we really haven't. Our, our, you know, we, we're, uh, you know, some people are more, quote, pure than we are. Um, we see ourselves as, as the primary source of education for our children, but we do use public resources. Um, uh, Spencer started, uh, my oldest son started um, some college courses when he was about 14 or 15, and uh, that was so wonderful. You know, I, I will have to, have to go back to what, that, what those first courses were and how well he did. But after a couple of years in, in taking part-time community college, he said, you know, I, I just don't want to feel like I've missed my senior year or missed the high school experience. So he went back and he took a couple of classes a day at the high school. He took uh, some physics and choir and things like that. And um, and he just hated it. <laughs> he was just like, I can't believe I made this stupid decision. I wish I had just continued on. And uh, he, he he was really frustrated with the interaction with the public school teachers and and uh, whereby, you know, there was so much, you know, what he, he saw, just, you know, so much stupid work and so much, you know, line up and stand here and, you know, all that kind of thing. And he'd already really moved beyond that, but he thought, well, he'd go back and have that social experience. But from his perspective, it wasn't worth it. To my next no. son, however, However, who saw his older brother, who had you know gone into a little public school, was like, "Well, I want to try that." And my next son is much more social, and to him, the line up and wait here and stupid work, but that just time to talk with his friends. And so he's taken a couple of classes at the at the local public school as well. And then my youngest son takes a choir class and kind of started in a science class, but didn't didn't really want to continue. So we're not we're not like anti public school. We just see public school as a resource that can help parents to accomplish goals and you know fill in gaps and things like that. Well, that's wonderful how you can do that, because I know that there are some public schools that won't let you do that. So, um, and I agree, we pay the taxes. Why can't we use the facilities? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We, and, you know, I'm a business guy, so I'm used to kind of overcoming objections and obstacles and yeah. such. And it would, you know, it would be unusual for us not to be able to get some level of services. We've lived in both Oregon and, uh, and Arizona and mm -hmm. uh, been able to interact with the public schools in both states. Well, good. Um, 
I'm going to ask you a question. My daughter, my, my youngest daughter actually goes to a community college. She's just finishing up. She's in her last semester and then she'll have her associate's degree and she's 18. But her humanities, te- yeah, her, her humanities teacher said the other day in class that the most important thing to teach a child is how to live in this world. And he said homeschoolers, their only criteria that they need to teach is reading and writing and to be a good citizen. And he claims that homeschoolers cannot teach their children how to be good citizens because they don't get out enough. So how would you respond to that? <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, that's, that is such a narrow-minded, I would almost say it's almost a bigoted kind of a, kind of a statement. You know, my, uh, I think if you talk to most parents of homeschoolers, uh, one of the problems with the public schools is just in the way of our getting out. It's in the way. You know, my children have traveled uh, all over the the United States. We have been in and out of, you know, virtually every national park and, and historical site. You know, when we wanted to study the Civil War, we went to the Deep South and we spent a couple months there. We wanted to study marine biology. We went to all over the the Pacific Ocean coast. We've studied marine biology from, you know, boat tours out in, the, in uh, out of Oregon to um, shoals in California to beaches in California to uh, we we spent some time in Costa Rica as I mentioned, and we actually watched these sea turtles come in and nest. We've we've uh, been in a marine biology environment in Florida. My youngest son got bit by a Portuguese, got stung by a Portuguese manta ray or Portuguese uh, this jellyfish thing, whatever they are, you yeah, know. The, the, yeah, the man of war. There we go. The, the the idea. I just think it's absurd. I mean, if people could really see what we're doing, home is not the is not an anchor. I mean, it's, it's not a prison. It's just a beginning point. It's a launching. It's a springboard to all these phenomenal things the kids are involved in. And and that's one of the reasons we don't public schools because the public schools spend so much time doing so little interaction with the real world. And what we want is we want our kids interacting with the real world. You know, we want yeah. them to be full prepared for the real world. So I think the professor is almost right in one way, and that is, I think it is more than reading, writing, and preparing, quote, to live in the world. I think there's a science component there, is that, is that there is a logical process that math in and of itself um, doesn't fully prepare somebody for scientific discovery from what I've, the way I've, I think you need some science. But I, I, think it's, I think it's reading, I think it's reading and writing, mathematics, science. And if you can get those things dialed in, um, then you're now prepared to go out and do what I think homeschoolers ought to be doing as preparing our children to learn and embrace the world in a really meaningful and positive way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I said to my daughter, did you stand up and say, no, you know, I'm fully socialized. Look at me. Look at look at how I'm I'm able to succeed in college or among my peers and people older than me even and uh, everything. And she, but she said, no, no. I just kind of sat back and just let him do his little chat because he, she's heard it all before. So, uh, anyway. yeah. So um, when you're at home and you're homeschooling, I mean. Moms and dads out there all experience, you know, a stress of, uh, you know, family just together all the time. You know, I, I've written about my, my, my kids are together, you know, so much that they know each other so well. They know exactly what buttons to push, you know, when, when, <laughs> when, when they want to irritate each other and things like that. And what buttons to push when they want to get us right. irritated. So, I mean, how, how do moms and dads reduce you know, this kind of thing and their stress levels in the, in the home, how, how would you, um, you know, sort of recommend, what would you recommend for that? 
Oh, yeah. And I didn't hear the introduction, but, um, you know, my wife and I both served on uh, a board for HomeSource in Oregon, which at the time was kind of a national model for homeschool public-private partnerships. And we've been involved in, you know, hundreds and hundreds of families and thousands of students in our lives that have been uh, in the homeschooling community, and now we're involved in the same uh Degree here in Arizona, and um, and so in a couple of weeks I'll be speaking at a at a conference here in Arizona, and that'll be my topic. And uh, first of all, I don't want to minimize the fact that there is real stress. I mean, everything in life has its challenges, and parenting is a high stakes, high risk kind of environment. Um, but but uh, so first of all, I fully acknowledge, and any any mom or dad out there that's pulling their hair out and feeling stressed about homeschooling, that's a legitimate feeling, and that's okay. That. The next piece, however, is how do we minimize that? And it, 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 what, we've, what we've done is we've finally come full, full circle, as you have with one child, and as you've gotten them past that kind of early kindergarten, perhaps junior high years, and seen them now launching. And my oldest son's in Brazil now and, and uh, doing very, very well in a foreign service role, and, uh, and my 17-year-old is about ready to launch, and we have you know, very positive feelings for him. And so what we can now look back and share with the younger moms and dads is there's really only a few things you have to do. And most of that will come natural to a curious child. I think, I think that uh, my message would be is that homeschooling, at least for me, the better part of homeschooling is not to bring the public school model into the home, but to allow a child to emerge and grow with their own curiosity, to nurture that light within, to nurture that sense of exploration and excitement about new, and give them the tools that they continue for the rest of their life to be able to explore and have that excitement and that curiosity and that newness and have that be a part of them. I love learning, and I love learning now because I'm a homeschool parent and because I've been engaged with this learning process in an exciting way. But when I was in public school, I was a terrible student. I hated where I was. I didn't like the environment I was in. And... Um, and so my message to anybody is is that um, what we really must do as parents is a lot, lot less than I think a lot of parents place upon themselves, especially with younger children. Mm-hmm. If you've got, you know, first or sixth grade kids, you're looking into the future of these great big unknowns, these huge and these huge challenges. And I think to just come back and say, hey, if your child can read at a, you know, if they can read Dickens, if they can read, and I think most parents would have that, if they can read, they can read classical great writers, your child's fully prepared for reading. If your child can talk about those great pieces of literature and understand them and interact with them, then then you've got a good comprehension level. If they can write in a five-paragraph format and make sense in their sentences, they're far ahead of most public school kids, and they're going to do perfectly fine competing in the real world and in the uh, and in the academic world. If you just start thinking about what does it take to get into college, it doesn't take much. You've got to be able to write a five-paragraph essay. You've got to be able to read at a you know eighth to tenth grade level at best, and that's always diminishing. You have to be able to handle the entry level of college algebra, which means that you have to have an introduction to algebra, which is about five different formula, you know, handling five different functions over both sides of the equal sign, and that's about it. Mm-hmm. And everything else is just enriching and, and, and you know, helping and growing and sustaining. Everything else is just it's the electives of life. Mm-hmm. And if you kind of come down to those core issues, that's all we have to have. And as long as your children have this sense of growth and excitement and enthusiasm, then you're doing great. It's, I, I'm more concerned that through, because of stress, there becomes a negative stress response to kids, mm-hmm. and they end up getting, you know, more demands and more repetition and more rote and more curricula when probably what they need is to listen to that sociology professor a little bit and say, 
say, let's experience the world and, mm-hmm. and learn to become good citizens and learn to participate well within the variables that exist outside the home rather than just in the home. Well, I'm talking to, yes, thank you. I'm talking to Larry Farris, homeschooler of three children. Larry and his family spent 10 months traveling around America in their RV, and we'll learn more about that after this short break. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Vision Onward is a mission. Vision Onward is passion. Vision Onward is compassion. It's God's power being shown in the world today with the guidance of the Holy Spirit through Jeff Holly and his family. And now, it's here on Toginet, Monday evenings at 9, 8 central. Vision Onward began over three years ago when Jeff and his family felt that after sitting in a church for years, they had come to a place in their faith where they were tired of sitting around and talking about their faith. They actually wanted to do something about it. So they decided to use their time, treasures, and talents that God had blessed them with to help those who have, by no choice of their own, been born into a world of poverty. So they walked away from the American dream, which they realize is actually a nightmare, so they can help others find hope in what seems to be a hopeless world. For more on Vision Onward, go to visiononward.org. This is truly a God-led adventure of the heart and humanity, making a difference for Christ. It's Vision Onward with Jeff Holly, Monday evenings at 9, 8 central on toginet.com. Prescription for a healthy life. It's your weekly dose of great medicine with host Bruce Weitzberg, CEO of Patient Access Solutions, Inc. Tuesday evenings at 7, 6 central on Tugginet.com, sponsored by TrueMedAlert.com. Prescription for a healthy life will cover all the aspects of the current healthcare industry. The business of medicine, home health care, prevention, treatment, administration, and more. Each segment of Prescription for a Healthy Life will talk about the issues so you can be a better informed patient. Plus, there'll be a world of information for caregivers, too. Bruce brings almost 20 years of healthcare industry experience to Patient Access Solutions, a technology solutions provider to the healthcare industry. For more on him and his company, check out PASHealth.com. And for more on the remarkable pendants, go to TrueMedAlert.com. Then get set for a dose of great medicine covering all the hot health topics of the day with Prescription for a Healthy Life with Bruce Weitzberg. Tuesday evenings at 7, 6 central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginet. And now back to your host, Vivian McNenny. Well, I'm back and I'm talking to Larry Farris. And um, Larry, you there? Yep. Yes, yes, we're here. Yes, 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 I can hear you now. Um, um, I was going to ask you about um, traveling for 10 months. Um, Was that a job that you were on, that you were able to do that? Or did you just save some money and decide we're going off? Or what did you do? It was kind of both. Um, We've, um, I, I opened an investment banking firm in Oregon in the 1990s. It was a small firm, and most of our projects were oriented towards uh, construction-related activities and forestry-related activities. So you really have a lot of your activity would go from about May until September. But once it starts raining, it's too muddy to do foundations and working and all that kind of stuff. And so if you've ever been in Oregon, it's pretty depressing in the winter. It's just constant rain in the western side of Oregon. So we looked for a way to kind of get out. And uh, so in... um, 
In the A485, I lived in Brazil in 87. Um, my wife and I um, uh, worked in Ecuador for the winter. In 93, I worked in Egypt for the winter without my children or my wife. And then uh, in 95, we traveled as a family to Costa Rica for the winter. And in 97, we did an RV to uh, central Mexico for the winter. And then uh, I hurt my back, and we didn't travel in 2000. And in 2004, we did another 10 months where we jumped in an RV, and we were in the country for, for 10 months. So it's kind of gypsy, you know. We have that. I have that kind of in my blood to travel. I grew up in a trucker's family, and we've traveled quite a bit just uh, because the business seasons uh, fluctuate. In our last, in our last trip, we, um, I taught uh, real estate investing and psychology um, and uh, kind of psychology for real estate-related investors and real estate-related business people. And so I would travel around, and we taught maybe six or eight different conferences and taught there and picked up some money. And, but it's, it's an interesting point. People ask me, but if you can, if you can um, get rid of the overhead of a home, we only spent about $15,000 on the road in 10 months. Right. It's 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 an interesting thing. It can get it can get fairly reasonable to be traveling uh, because your overhead, as long as you're not moving. You know, when you're moving, you're burning a lot of diesel fuel on our rig. But when you're not moving, and you're you know just going out to the parks and seeing the historic sites and such, and doing short day trips, your overhead's pretty low. Mm-hmm. And so, did you did you have a, a like a a schedule? You know, you get up first thing in the morning and do your homeschool, or you know, do your teaching, or was it just very non-school? You just kind of experienced everything. While we were on the road, we were primarily experiential. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would get up and have our activities that were necessary for maintaining the the RV, and it was a lot of work to maintain an RV and uh, get everything cleaned and such. And then we would do most of our studies, our books, books and things like that, while we were actually driving. Yeah. Uh, while so you were driving, the yeah. yeah, yeah, we had a we had a large uh, Ford pickup. We had a big back seat, and the kids were small enough. And the wife, she'd read. Uh, you know, we were we read all of the House and the Prairie books, and we read all of the um, the Scarlet books. Uh, uh, what do you, you know? The um, you know the Civil War era. And, oh uh, yeah. Tom yeah. Cabin, all that. So we were reading all the time. We were traveling, and then. And then when mom was out of out of breath, and we really enjoy that, when mom was out of breath or was done reading, then there was, you know, assignments in math and homework activities, things like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so um, did that work really well? I mean, were the children kind of um, happy to do that, or did they just want to, you know, sort of just chill out in the car and watch TV like a lot of children do? <laughs> Well, even now, we really enjoy our travel times because, um, you know, my oldest boy, before he went to Brazil, he's 19 years old and took a short road trip. And, you know, we've got to find a great piece of classical literature. The last thing we read on the road was um, Summer of the Monkeys. And here's all oh, these, yeah. you know, late teenage boys are just really having a great time listening to mom read Summer of the Monkeys. And, yeah, yeah so we're kind of nerdy. But, yeah, we, we like that. We really enjoy those yeah. times together. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. They're going to have some wonderful memories. So... So how do you keep a homeschool marriage strong? And you obviously spend a lot of time, you and your wife also spend a lot of time together. So how do you do that? We do. Um, Brenda needs more alone time than I do. My wife is Brenda. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, um, last week there was an opportunity for the boys to go on a church program where they pushed hand carts across the desert and reenacted some pioneer stuff. So they were gone for three days, and I made sure that I was gone, that I scheduled my business travel during that same time period. That gives Brenda, you know, three-plus full days just completely alone so she can kind of decompress and, mm-hmm. and just, you know, just be a woman and enjoy herself. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're sensitive to that. 
But otherwise, I work from the home. Brenda's a full-time home mom, and uh, and the kids are in and out of the home all the time. And mm-hmm. you know, we like it. So if it's if it's what you enjoy, then it's not too painful. No, no. Um, so your children, how old are they? Your oldest is nineteen. My oldest now twenty. He just turned twenty. Okay. Uh, seventeen, seventeen and a half, and fifteen. Okay, so you've lost. So one's gone. <laughs> I mean, you yeah. know, you're 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 down to two now. And um, how is you know how does that? I mean, how how what's that like? I mean, I know I know what it's like. It's kind of going through emptiness. How are you going through the emptiness? It was you know <laughs> it was painful for us. It, yeah. uh, it's interesting because um, Spencer's gone off on a mission. He's in Brazil, and. Um, it was limited contact. We'd, I, I, I uh, served in Brazil, and it was interesting because we both have Portuguese backgrounds now and such. Um, it, it, was, it was very challenging for us because I, I, you know, we have such a deep connection with our children that when they go, now maybe maybe everybody thinks that they have a great connection with their kids, but you know, Spencer was just involved in everything in our lives. That leaves a really big hole, and it's it's very painful. It's really hard. We get an email from him once a week, and we're really glad to get that. And um, but all of us kind of went through, you know, not just mom and dad, but the older, the older, you know, the other boys. They went through that kind of emptiness thing as well, and it, it's still very challenging. He's only been gone for nine months, and um, our expectation is he'll be back in uh, December of 2012. And then about that time period, Benson's going to be leaving in May or June, we expect. So there'll be a short time, and now we're starting to all plan on, okay, when Spencer comes home, what can we all be doing as a family together? What are we going to do with those three or four months before Benson leaves? And then when Benson comes back, it'll be about the same thing where Hunter will be about ready to go himself. So those are really prime moments that are going to happen over the next six years that we're already kind of thinking through. Yeah, yeah, you have to do that. Um, talk a little bit about um, curriculum. Um, did you use textbooks at all? I know you read a lot, obviously. You you, you all read a lot. Um, what about you have to have textbooks for certain things. You just can't get away from them, like for the math and the science, I think. What, what right. do you think? Um, I find it very difficult to find any science textbooks that teach the truth. And um, so we, I teach a a homeschool outreach group in the winter where on Friday afternoons we gather all the teens together and we, when we call it broken science, Um, there we use almost exclusively peer-reviewed journals. And it's kind of fun to be, to be introducing parents the idea that your children at 14 and 15 are ready now to read the most, you know, the highest level of writing available in science, a peer-reviewed journal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but we want to study, uh, so let me answer your question early. Um, mathematically, yes, we do use a, a, a specific curriculum, and uh, I don't know whether you talk about curriculums on your show or not. Yes, I do. And so we use Saxon math for yeah. our math curriculum, and mm-hmm. we just it, it flows very well for us, and we like the the repetition that happens from chapter to chapter, and we feel like it it preps very very well. Um, Spencer finished up uh, a calculus level Saxon math book before he went to the community college, so his first ever um, formal math class turned out to be three dimensional calculus with analytical geometry in the engineering program, uh-huh. and he kicked it. He did great, and so. Yeah. Saxon parents 
I don't know about the other curriculums, but I know Saxon does a great job of preparing yeah. kids for... Um, now, the one thing we felt is Saxon had taken Spencer so far mathematically that he was kind of... He kind of outrun the SAT and the ACT test, and he did not do as well in the SAT and the ACT as he could have because he'd already... He's already gone well past that area. Yes. and. Yeah. So we, we want to be careful with that. I would encourage parents, get your children to take the SAT and the ACTs before they start taking calculus. Yeah. Um, because that way it's, that way that pure algebra, and that's as far as they go, is there. Yeah. But then the other thing we do is just in the curriculum side, um, you know, we are, we're Christian and we're very interested in biblical science. And in the first seven verses of the Bible, God uses the word water. And if I were an old Jew and I were reading water seven times in seven verses, I know I'm going to need to pay attention to that. And then the verse, first ten verses of the old of, of the Old Testament, God uses a term of the word water ten times. So here we have water seven times and in seven verses, and a term of water seven ten times in ten verses. When I start looking at the way our planet was formed, I'm going to want to study water. Well, mm-hmm. nobody does that in the curriculum forms. I haven't found a curriculum yet that acknowledges and references the older Jewish formative view. And in the 1800s, there was a debate between what was called the Neptunists and the Vulcanists, and the Vulcanists won. The Neptunists made a stumble in their logic. But that's what we're interested in doing. So we're going to find peer-reviewed journals that talk about the influences of water in rock formations and the birth of rocks. And and uh, we've had a hard time finding curriculum to support um, biblical truths in science. And yet there are hundreds and hundreds of hundreds <laughs> we play that <laughs> There's hundreds of evidences uh, all around us of of a, a global flood and and how that global flood impacted our current Earth surface. And mm-hmm. we teach all of those things out of peer-reviewed journals. And I'm sure if the publishers of the peer-reviewed journals knew that we were teaching the Bible, they'd be upset about it. But we do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well. I, I um, tend to agree with you. I did find I I have a science um, curriculum that I used, Apologia, Jay Weil. Have you heard mm-hmm. of them? I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which I which I thought was um, pretty good, just the way he, he wrote it. But um, anyway, we're not going to get into yeah, that yeah. because we don't have time to get into that because um, <laughs> we are coming close to the end of our time together, Larry. Thank you so much for joining us. We've barely scraped the surface here on what we need to talk about, but um, there will always be another time. So... Um, I've been talking to um, Larry Farris, homeschooling father of three children, aged 20, 17, and 15. Larry and I talked about some of the non-traditional and fun ways of teaching high schoolers while you're traveling around in preparation for college without replicating the regimented classroom in your house. By following yours and your children's dreams, you can have fun while you learn by using your community's resources, and Larry even used his local public schools. So hop on your preferred mode of transport and discover the world around you and get out there and bust all those stereotypes that say we can't socialize our children. Homeschoolers aren't social. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and have a good weekend, Larry. And thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. Thanks, Vivian. Cheers. You're welcome. And I'll be back after these messages.
How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Parents, if you feel overloaded, overworked, underappreciated, and seriously stressed out, the Parents Plate is here to help you. The Parents Plate with Brenda Nixon. Tuesday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on Toginet. It's time to build stronger families through parent empowerment. And that's what the Parents Plate does. The Parents Plate understands the busyness of life and balancing child rearing and other commitments. Brenda Nixon will be talking to noted experts and authors on all issues, from teething to teen driving. Brenda Nixon is a nationally recognized speaker to parents and child care professionals and author of the award-winning The Birth to Five book. From Fox 4 in Kansas City to schools and synagogues to businesses to bookstores, conferences to churches, audiences rave that Brenda engages, educates, and encourages. For more information on Brenda and her books, check out her website, brendanixon.com. The Parents Plate is loaded with information and affirmation. The Parents Plate with Brenda Nixon. Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Innovation and insight. Problems and solutions. Capitalizing on your ideas and efforts. That's all a part of Changing the World One Invention at a Time with Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on toginet.com. Rick will be sharing stories of innovation, invention, inspiration, and overcoming obstacles with guests who have been there, done that, and are doing that. Rick will be asking the right questions, helping you identify the real problems, and showing you how to act on your ideas by increasing consumer confidence, and more importantly, increasing your confidence to act on your ideas. For even more information, go to thinktech, that's T-E-K, globally.com. Then join us as Rick and his guest teaches how to develop new ideas and create new products, new businesses, new jobs. And together, let's get our economy growing again. It's changing the world one invention at a time with author and inventor Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNenny. Putting yourself into someone else's shoes. This is empathy. When I was growing up, I don't know if I ever consciously did this because I find myself today asking, hey, what if someone said or did that to me when I'm ranting at or criticizing someone near and dear to me who happens to live in the same house? As I mature and grow wiser, sounds much younger than, as I grow older, I realize that I get on my high horse a lot, expecting everyone to go, oh, you're so right and I'm so wrong, never once thinking, do these people have a different outlook on life to me? Perish the thought. But what if they do? And is it all right for us to differ? Will we still get on? I wonder if this is my upbringing. Was I raised in a culture where we all presumed we thought the same way? Not only sharing a language, traditions, currency, food preferences, but also thoughts and opinions? Arrival in America opened my eyes a little, just a teeny bit, but I really didn't get the cultural difference until I started asking questions years after my arrival. I deduced after time that I have a tendency to distance myself from what is going on around me if it interferes even slightly with my concept of what should be going on around me. Maybe my father shielded me like he shielded my mum, only in a subtly different way, as the following story reveals. At the age of 11, 
I was living in Beirut, Lebanon. My father would go to the meat market. He'd take me, never my mother, whose stomach couldn't tolerate it, and buy a chicken each week. The chicken was barely dead, having just been slaughtered and plucked moments earlier in the yard behind the shop. My father and I would carry our purchase home with us, and while Mummy napped, before he got down to the nasty business of making it fit for the oven, he'd share a rare moment of mirth with my younger brother and me by finding tendons within its cavity to make the carcass wiggle its legs or its head and speak to us in all its naked splendour. Then he'd expertly decapitate the bird, remove the feet and clean out the innards, wrap it in wax paper and pop it in the fridge for mummy to find the next morning and cook for lunch. One day, I overheard the embassy women talking about how they had to deal with the chickens bought from the local supermarket, how they had to cut off the extraneous parts and clean out the interior. And my mother, in her innocent ignorance, said, oh, my chickens come cleaned and oven ready. That my father sheltered her and not me speaks volumes, but I learned how husbands should treat their wives, hence my perfect southern gentleman. Britain had a great commonwealth that she had brought in the Victorian era. This added to our everyone's the same mentality, for wherever we went in the commonwealth, our British passports gained entrance, the locals spoke our language, they served tea and crumpets, drank gin and tonics, were civilised and enjoyed every moment dad gamut. As a nation, we decided it was for the betterment of the country we were conquering to live in our shoes. We gave no thought to existing culture and ways of life. Our way was the only way and the best. How arrogant of us. When I was at boarding school, we were all in the same boat. I spent all day and all night with my classmates, which made for a fertile, bullying arena. I was British and sported a stiff upper lip and firmly controlled emotions. I thought bullies were folk who weren't shy, who had it all going for them, who were braver than me. I thought I deserved to be bullied because of how I looked or who I was. I was made fun of, rightfully so, I thought, because my hair was horrible and thick, uncontrollable and frizzy in damp weather. The girls who teased me and stared at my hair probably harboured harbored covetous thoughts about my long, glossy locks, but I never imagined for a moment that I was the kind of person anyone could be jealous of. I was tall, clumsy, ungainly, no good at sports, and always cast as a male in the end-of-year operetta. Despite all this, though, I shone at the most graceful and beautiful activity on offer at my school, ballet. Here, I was elegant and poised. However, the self-esteem derived in the ballet studio dissipated like fog in the early morning sunshine when I returned to the corridors, dormitories and classrooms of my school. Bullying can take the form of name-calling, pushing, dirty looks, fighting and spreading rumours. Experts say the facts are troubling because bullying too often leads to violence, loss of self-esteem, depression and even suicide. My guest last week, Betty Hefner, who almost lost a teenage family member to suicide because of bullying, told me that the tweens and teens she helps in her organisation, Hey Ugly, describe bullies as having low self-esteem and problems in their lives. Betty said... Not only are the bullied suffering, but the bullies are as well. Imagine my surprise when I questioned my lovely daughter about bullies. She replied, bullies have problems of their own. That's why they want to make other people feel miserable. They bully them. They feel helpless at home or at school, so they look to bullying to give them feelings of power and control. 
They have low self-esteem and don't care about how other people feel. Hey, where did you learn that, I asked. That's what you've always taught me. Way to go, Mum. Our children are raised with empathy and the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have done unto you. Without it, bullying ensues. Martin Hoffman, an emeritus professor of psychology at New York University and a pioneer of empathy research, says that nearly 90% of brain growth takes place in the first five years of life and the minds of young children who have been neglected or traumatized often fail to make the connection between people and pleasure. That deficit can make it difficult for them to feel or demonstrate love later on. You can enhance empathy by the way you treat children, or you can kill it by providing a harsh, punitive environment. Mentally, put yourself in the other person's shoes before you act or talk. Are you going to make that person smile and feel good about themselves, or are you going to bring tears of pain to their eyes? Empathize. Don't terrorize. I know I'm the sociable homeschooler and for a very good reason too, but when it came down to teaching my children and making sure they were getting all they could out of life, I guarded our time together like a mother cat with her kittens, or should I say, like a mother with her children. Actually, no, that analogy doesn't always work because so many mothers don't guard their time with their children. They try to do it all. I spoke to one young homeschooling mother last evening and she said for 10 years she was a working mum. She actually said mom, but I knew what she meant. This mum has been a guest on my show and she has two young girls that she's homeschooling. This is her third year. Melissa is an advocate of women's rights, aren't we all in one way or another? She said when she was younger, pre-children, she'd be the first to say that a woman needs to be able to pursue her hobbies, her desires, her career and forge a life for herself far removed from the stereotypical role of wife, mother and homemaker, although she admitted some women find that role is fulfilling in itself. Melissa firmly believed that women could work and be a wife and mother until she tried to do it herself. She worked full-time as a teacher and found she had to go to part-time because she really couldn't give all of herself in any of the areas of her life. If she gave herself completely to her job, her family suffered, and if she gave herself completely to her family, her job suffered. And we all know that when it comes down to it, no matter where your loyalties lie, the job wins out in the end and the family suffers because they understand. Point in question. My oldest son has a friend who works full time but says her kiddos come first. She has sporadic hours at her job and sometimes her co-workers complain to her boss about her taking time off for a sick child or for a school play. Her boss tells her that she's fine. Put her children first. Great, huh? Well... What if her boss decides one day that she isn't fine? I asked my son this, and so he asked her in turn because he's not of the generation of those who do not talk for others, as parents tend to. And she said, well, I need my job to pay my bills and keep my children fed and clothed. So guess what? Job comes first, even though she believes and says her family comes first. Melissa said she ended up having to leave her job because she noticed that her family was suffering because of her job. And I thought of the words of Jesus. Oh, the Bible is so good at life lessons. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Matthew six twenty four. So here I am, social, but not a butterfly, jealously guarding exclusive time with my children by sticking to my homeschool schedule, no matter what form it takes, walking, 
picnicking, riding, swimming, romping, reading or eating. And as long as we were at home, everything went smoothly. As long as I was in charge of the activities and could designate how we spent the lovely long hours that make up each day, everything was fine. But as the children edged into double-digit ages and extracurricular activities popped up on the horizon, the dreaded hour of five o'clock began to loom ominously. By four, we were erupting into a riot of activity that was completely beyond my control. Well, let's put that another way. It was my choice, but I had to abide by someone else's schedule and allocation of time. I resisted, but I also respected my children's time and the time of their new teachers. Ballet lessons, gymnastics, boys' choirs, theatre rehearsals ate into our evenings, and we found ourselves planning our mornings, for goodness sake, in order to be able to comply with our evening responsibilities. Family dinner time became compromised, and I didn't like that. I really worried if my children don't eat. My mother once remarked, your children are always eating. There was never so much as a twinge of a hunger pang allowed in my house. In the end, we decided that we were going to have lunch together. So to um, protect time during the precious weekdays, we prepared endless meals on a Sunday so that we could just heat them up during the week and thus began a habit that lasted and lasted. And as an added bonus, we all lost weight. Well, I guess... I have used up another whole hour, so I will bid you farewell this week, and I'm off to see you're a good man, Charlie Brown, on stage at the college. So I'll say thanks to my handsome husband, who believes in love at first sight, our four children, who are the result of that belief, the hard-working staff at Togginet Radio, my guest, Larry, Melissa, for her thoughts on serving two masters, you, my faithful listeners, especially Hannah, Tina and St. John's, Ali Lopreet, host of This Little Parent Stayed Home, will be coming up next on Togginet Radio, so don't go away. Have a great week, and may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord show you his kindness and have mercy on you. May the Lord watch over you and give you peace. Numbers 624 to 26. And I will see you next week. Thank you for joining us for The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney on Tokyo.